Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined by my friend Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital Research. Hey, Christine. Hello, hello. Yes, I'm going with a deep voice today. Welcome to Galaxy Brain. It gets cheesier every <laughs> single week, Alex. And honestly, you do it at the same like tempo. And I feel like if we go back and compare all of them, they'll all be we like We should mash it up at some point. Um, we have an awesome episode today. We've got uh, Alex Gladstein, the chief strategy officer for the Human Rights Foundation on the podcast. We're going to talk with him uh, at length about his work and HRF and uh, what they're doing and seeing with Bitcoin adoption around the world, uh, particularly in emerging economies um, under authoritarian regimes. Um, very different, uh, I think, than a lot of folks in the West think about when they think about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It's heavy stuff, but important stuff for us to know. Yeah, it'll be a great conversation. Um, but first, uh, Christine and I will talk about some of the wild stuff that's happened this week in the cryptocurrency uh, world. Um, I think probably the most, one of the most surprising just happened yesterday. Today is Wednesday. Um, we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, a lot of Solana wallets appeared to be hacked um, in some way. They were sending coins away um, that their users had not initiated these transactions. It appears as though the private keys of these wallets were compromised. And right now, people still don't know exactly what the real issue is. There's a lot of talk and hypotheses around supply chain attacks. Mm -hmm. And for many people who, who um, you know, recently came into the crypto space, I mean, supply chain attacks, it's not a common kind right. of attack. It's actually really hard to, to pull yeah, off. It's like a very long con, right? right? The idea behind the supply chain attack is um, that you think about the supply chain of open source code, mm -hmm. that, that at some point, um, some malicious code was inserted into some part of the open source code that runs these wallets. And it doesn't actually even have to go into the wallet's repository, can go into a library or something that the wallet re uh, relies on. This actually happened with the Copay multi-sig wallet. I think that was what, 2018-ish? Um, and it and it can cause uh, you know malicious um, software to end up in these downstream projects. That's the 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 best guess today as to what happened um, with these uh, with Phantom Wallet and I think a couple others. Maybe Slope was another wallet that it may have occurred with. Um, and and we think that because these um, transactions are being sent legitimately from these wallets, meaning that the transactions are signed properly with the correct private keys but these users haven't initiated those transactions. Um, and it's happened to something like, what was it, 8,000 wallets or something we, we've, we're we aware of at the moment? Yep, 8,000. And I believe the last activity that we saw, because all of these funds were flowing into like three or four specific uh, hacker Solana wallets. And the last transaction activity that I saw before recording this podcast was around four hours ago. So it does appear as though that activity yeah. has slowed down. But because nobody knows exactly what the root cause is, we're not sure if, you know, the attacker could potentially start to siphon off funds again. And one of the questions that I had, and maybe you know this more, Alex, because of, of, of your knowledge about supply chain attacks, if it is that this was a supply chain attack impacting, you know, Solana wallets like Phantom and um, what was the other one? Slope. Slope. Yeah. 
I mean, there's millions of wallets out there. Why did it, impa it impact more wallets? Like, why just those? We just don't know yet. We don't know what the actual vulnerability is. I think w if we figure that out, um, and it and if it turns out it was one of these supply chain attacks on the on the code or, or or certain pieces of the code that are used in the wallet, then then we can probably do some tracing and figure out how widely used that that um, library is. But um, definitely frightening stuff. I mean, usually when you hear about hacks, it's a, it's just one person, right? Or it's like, um, right, they infiltrate your computer or wherever, or your cold storage device and recover your keys in that way and then reconstitute the wallet themselves. Um, or it's usually centralized, right? It's, it's a centralized exchange that gets hacked. Um, or I guess I should throw out, it's, it could be a faulty smart contract design, right? Um, that allows for some vulnerability. We saw that actually also with the Nomad Bridge, um, poor bridges, this concept of um, typically it's kind of like an escrow contract on both sides of two L1 blockchains. And you send coins in on one side, say on ETH, and then they, they get reissued in a wrapped way on another blockchain. Um, these have just been getting devastated by vulnerabilities and hacks. I mean, there was there have been so many. There was there was the Ronin bridge for Axie. There was the wormhole uh, bridge. Now this nomad bridge, which, um, I think was drained of all of its funds, 180 million or so dollars worth of cryptos. Um, but one thing about that one that was funny was that, um, it was somebody figured out how to send a transaction into the bridge that resulted in the bridge paying you out with free money, right from the bridge. Um, and a bunch of other people saw that transaction and copied it and just replaced the recipient address with their own. And so that bridge was drained by many different people. Right. It wasn't just like one attacker um, and 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 some of them, although, we, you know, this is too early to really know this, but some of them have come out and said, I intend to give this money back. I was sort of being a white hat by draining this bridge and because to, to protect the funds and then I'll return them. We'll see uh, how much of that happens. But I mean, the Nomad team had to go on Twitter and ask everybody, you know, if by any chance, you know, you have a change of heart from yeah. like the kind of funds that you told this took please like reinsert it back to this this address i think it's pretty telling that the uh reaction to the nomad bridge because it was a bug in the smart contract um seemed to be a lot more damaging to nomad than you know most people think that what happened on solana was a uh, supply chain attack it wasn't any issue with like solana court protocol or dap on solana or anything like that right third-party wallet built for solana and the response has hasn't been i think as damaging as what we saw in the aftermath of the nomad bridge hack yeah and uh, a couple other interesting things uh today um and i haven't seen the full text yet but in congress uh, a bipartisan group of senators um i believe uh stabenow and booker on the democratic side and uh, Boozman and Thune on the Republican side, all members of the Senate Agricultural Committee have introduced a bill, the Digital Commodities uh, Consumer Protection Act, maybe it's called, um, something like that. And um, it's it's an interesting one along, along the lines of sort of what we've been seeing in terms of bringing more comprehensive regulatory frameworks in the United States uh, for cryptocurrencies. This bill specifically says Bitcoin and Ether are commodities um, and that cryptocurrency exchanges should broadly be regulated um, by the CFTC. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's also a, a about in line with what the Lummis Gillibrand bill suggested on which of these agencies should take a primary role. Um, but it's noteworthy that um, I think the U.S. is the only major economy that separates the regulation of um, securities and commodities and, and, and also derivatives, right? 
Um, and we do. We have the SEC, which regulates securities and, and securities exchanges. And we have the CFTC, which regulates commodities and and um, derivatives on, on those commodities, derivatives exchanges like CME and SIBO. Um, and by the way, that split extends back down into Congress, right? So the SEC is overseen by the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee. But the CFTC is overseen by the agricultural committees in each of the of the chambers of Congress. So it, I what I'm getting at here is it, it may be correct that we should be considering Bitcoin and Ether or or any others or any amount of them commodities, not securities or one way or another. That's a whole separate debate. But it should come as no surprise that members of the agricultural committee think it should be under the CFTC. And some members of the banking committee think it should be under the SEC, right? Because this actually is their remit, right? If they, if it becomes such that uh, that the CFTC ends up regulating the majority of cryptocurrencies, then all of those House and Senate members who oversee the SEC essentially lose out on a big new part of their portfolio. So that division of power is one of the reasons why it's so hard to see a comprehensive framework, regulatory framework around cryptocurrencies, yes. just by nature of the fact that, you know, there's this power struggle going on between these two separate, you know, branches of government. That's right. That's right. It's part of it. That's it's not annoying. just the intellectual and legal questions around like the Howey test and the and securities law and what is a commodity, right? Those also exist. And it's not just the power struggle generally between regulatory bodies, the SEC and the CFTC, which also exists. It's also a political question in Congress and in and, and which committees and, and members and, and senators will get to oversee this growing and important industry. And it's not often that you have an entire new industry, you know, spring out of nowhere or not nowhere, but it's, you know, it has been, you know, 15 years or, or 13, 14 years um, since Bitcoin was um, was launched by Satoshi Nakamoto. But it's not often that you see something like this sprout up that raises that sort of falls completely through the cracks of the existing regulatory and um, and um, political structures. And thus now these sort of these different factions are sort of vying for control for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's not solely for control. There are legitimate questions on the sort of facts and, and existing laws. But um, very interesting, very interesting. I, you know, just as a as a, an aside, like I think probably, you know, pretty unlikely that this gets passed into even even passes the Senate in any time soon, um, especially with the midterm elections coming up in November. Um, you know, we're still waiting, though. I think one of the more interesting ones was the 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 work that um, Maxine Waters and Patrick McHenry, uh, the chairperson and ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, have been doing on stablecoin, uh, a stablecoin leg uh, legislative package. Um, they delayed that until after the August recess. But my guess is if something gets passed in Congress this year, um, it'll be on stable coins and not on comprehensive digital, you know, digital asset oversight and regulation. But um, still, uh, we're seeing a lot of momentum here uh, for something to get done. Speaking of proactive action in on the regular U.S. regulatory front, there has also been some new enforcement actions. Robinhood's crypto division was fined for $30 million for significant failure, failures in areas of anti-money laundering and cybersecurity regulations. This was the first crypto sector enforcement by the New York State Department of Financial Services. Alex, what do you make of this? The first ever? Really interesting. Um, look, I mean, I, I don't know the details and I read some of the news story about this, so it's not clear exactly what they did or didn't do. But, um, you know, look, regulation is real and 
and um, regulated institutions have to have to follow rules and, and have programs to help them follow rules. So it doesn't really shouldn't be that surprising. I don't mean for Robin Hood specifically. I just mean in general, like this, this does happen, um, not necessarily just on BSA compliance stuff like AML KYC rules, but on a variety of things. Right. There are a lot of rules. So, um, you know, I don't think it's particularly like noteworthy one way or another, but that is a large dollar figure, 30 million. Isn't it kind of noteworthy that this from the NYDFS kind of already makes what's what's already a very unfriendly state towards crypto, like even more unfriendly? And NYC is like the hub of legacy traditional finance. So is there some kind of a we don't want crypto here. We don't want crypto to unseat. I don't know. I hope that doesn't stand in the long run because uh, I think New York is a great, great city. So we'll just have to wait and see. The NYDFS is statewide as well. So it's not just New York City. But um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think um, it, it is interesting that it was NYDFS, say, not like, you know, a different national body that regulates Robin Hood. But um, we don't know. I don't know too much about it. So um, I think that's good. I mean, we, let's get to Alex because uh, we have a great conversation coming up. So, yeah, let's get to Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. All right, let's go now to our guest, Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, um, a great voice on both human rights and Bitcoin. Really excited to have you here, Alex. Thanks for coming today. My pleasure to be here. So, as I said, you're the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. Um, I know a lot of folks that are in, in uh, you know, in Bitcoin and have been following the space for a long time know about you and what you guys do. But for those listeners who don't know, um, what exactly does Human Rights Foundation do in general? What is the Human Rights Foundation? Sure. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonprofit that was founded in 2005 by a Venezuelan human rights activist named Thor Halverson and is currently chaired by Garry Kasparov, the Russian chess grandmaster and democracy activist. Our president is a Lebanese activist named Celine Bustani. And our staff come from all over the world. Our founding mission was to help people who live under authoritarian governments with regard to civil liberties advocacy. So we look at free speech, freedom to associate, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom from religion, uh, all kinds of press freedom issues. We look at fighting modern day human trafficking and slavery. Uh, we look at the right to participate in your government. We look at private property. So we look at classic negative rights and civil liberties around the world where kind of they're most at risk. And that's been our journey since our founding. And I joined in 2007. So for 15 years, I've been working on this. Wow. We host events that bring together dissidents from authoritarian countries around the world to help understand what they need and then try to help empower them. We have programs that help free people from prison who are prisoners of conscience. We do all kinds of campaigns and public education to raise the awareness of the issue of dictatorship and why it's pernicious for human flourishing. And throughout that whole time, I've, I've had a focus on technology and how technology can you know, either um, improve or reduce the human condition through you know, maybe empowerment tools like encryption or Bitcoin or through repressive tools like, for example, uh, or, you know, like a police surveillance state. It's a huge mandate. It's I think your focus on technology is is so important, given the strides that we've made as a society in our technology. But as you point out, also the um, the, the effectiveness of state surveillance and repression 
through the use of technology. I mean, things that come to mind for me are like the China's social credit score and their facial recognition technology and, and, and how like, you know, you've seen those graphics online, those videos of people walking across the street in their database, just pinpointing and naming every single person. Um, and that gets pretty dystopian pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I think it's worth just d- dwelling quickly on on our focus just for a second. Um, of course, human rights matters in every country. And you can make an argument that, you know, we've been sitting in this world where it's been about 53, 54% of the world's population under an authoritarian regime, um, about 4.3 billion people in 95 countries. But that changes, right? So, you know, maybe we're watching India become authoritarian is possible. Um, some organizations have already, let's say, downgraded India. Um, so when you downgrade India, you go from you go from 53% to something like um, 75%. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so we're, you know, and there's a couple other countries that are looking iffy. Um, and then, you know, these are kind of like bare minimum um, definitions in terms of like independence of judiciary, free press, private property. There's also a whole host of other concerns that democracies are facing with regard to surveillance, uh, health and biological restrictions, um, and of course, currency and monetary restrictions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think human rights are a problem everywhere. The reason we focus on, on authoritarian regimes that as we can define them is because that's where there are the fewest resources going. Um, and I'm sure the listeners will understand, but essentially like, essentially like a lot of the world's wealth is in the West and a lot of the world's philanthropic giving is in the West, almost all of it. So if you think about where the, where the money comes from for human rights, it's more than 90 to 95% of it is coming from the U S and Europe alone. Okay. And most of that money goes back into those societies, which is, which makes sense. Like I can empathize with that. Like you want to support Mm -hmm. uh, your own backyard first before halfway around the world. So the thing is like most of the human rights funding that's available in the world you know, goes towards improving human rights in the United States uh, and in Europe, um, or maybe to a lesser extent, other demo- other you know democracies like Japan or Israel, etc. Um, there is very, very, very little, re- very, very. There are very, very, very few resources for supporting human rights in like China, Saudi Arabia, etc. Even though that that's where like the bulk of the world's people are living, and and that's where the the most dire kind of situation is with regard to to freedom. So that's that that explains our mission. And it's probably to that point um harder to to really be involved in in supporting those activist groups under authoritarian regimes because of a lack of transparency, a lack of institutions, rails like standards, like practices that might be more well established in the West when Even it comes safety, to safety, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you guys get out there? And like help in a in an authoritarian regime. Is it working mostly with activists on the ground, or do you guys go on the ground? And in, in these in some of these places can be dangerous. Well, just I mean, look, there's a lot of relativism, and people are like, oh, you know, they're looking at like, you know, COVID restrictions in Australia, and they're like, oh my god, that looks like a dictatorship. Right. You have to understand, in a dictatorship, like you can't you can't you can't criticize the government. Like in Australia and the United States and other countries, like you can get really rich, wealthy, being a comedian on television, criticizing the government. Um, you know, this is actually where Zelensky came from in Ukraine. Right. He was a comedian making fun of the government. So in, in, in 
let's say, non-authoritarian societies, which come in different shapes and forms. You have parliamentary uh, monarchies, right? You have kind of like the UK or something like that. Mm -hmm. You also have, um, you know, republics like the United States, et cetera, et cetera. But you have a variety of kind of like more open societies. And, and they're just very structured. They're structured very differently. It doesn't mean they can't commit horrible human rights violations. I mean, the United States invaded Iraq, which is probably like one of the most unethical things on the planet in the last 20 years. But, but the structure within makes it possible for people to seek accountability and change the government, um, whether that's through elections or an independent judiciary or a free press. And, you know, for just like as a reality check, like people in Saudi Arabia or Russia or China, like they don't have these same institutions and, and mechanisms. Like they don't, have an independent court. The court is subservient to whether it be the CCP or Putin or whatever. They don't have an independent press. The press that gets basically driven out of the country or made illegal. Um, they don't have, for example, um, the ability to create NGOs. So like Amnesty International would be illegal in Saudi Arabia or Russia or China. It's not, they don't exist. Same with like Greenpeace. Yep. So it's super important to, to understand the difference between what, what we would call uh, a, a free society which, which can be quite flawed, and a fear society. I mean, it really all boils down to this one litmus test of like, can you go to like a public square and criticize the government? Yes or no. <laughs> um, and that that kind of divides the world. And, you know, when it comes to our work and, and safety, um, you know, we, we have a strategy of like identifying people who are really effective on the ground, who are grassroots leaders and and basically asking them, how can we help you? Yep. And that might be North Korean defectors who've escaped now live in Seoul and who send information back to their homeland. We're going over there to Seoul. I've been there many times and I sit down with them and we say, well, how can we help you? That might be a democracy advocate in Zimbabwe. That might be a student leader in Venezuela. So kind of our, our, our theory of change is premised on find like effective change makers inside the society and ask them how we can help them. Speaking of that kind of grassroots way to tackle and support these activists that are living under, like you said, that fear regime, um, what, to what extent um, do you guys see Bitcoin as a tool? Like you were talking about the technologies that you think are really important in your guys's work. Do you see Bitcoin as like a practical tool that you use to help these like activists and these defectors or is it more of like a long-term ideology that you see bitcoin um, eventually growing into becoming accepted as tell me a little bit more about how mm -hmm. the hrf is either practically using bitcoin or sees bitcoin as like a philosophy that is really powerful in these situations across the world well from an institutional point of view it's it's practical it's a tool um of course, we've observed for a long time its use case. Um, we host a conference called the Oslo Freedom Forum. It started in 2009. In 2010, we had Julian Assange speak at the conference in person. I met him. Um, and six months later, Satoshi Nakamoto posted their last public post on Bitcoin Talk, basically saying that, that they were worried that, you know, if WikiLeaks started using Bitcoin, then you know, the whole project could, 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 right. you know, be attacked and killed. Uh, Satoshi disappeared soon after from all kinds of correspondence. And six months later, Julian Assange tweeted a Bitcoin address. And I, I, we remember seeing that and we were like, Hmm, it's kind of interesting, but you know, you have to remember at the time, Bitcoin was like, so fringe, wasn't worth any, worth, worth anything was literally just used by like, 
I mean, mainly all the accusations against it today that are false were, were sort of true then, right? So <laughs> this was like, like 2010. All right, this is a little weird. 2011, the summer yeah. of 2011, we were like, hmm, okay, interesting, but we'll pass. Um, kind of like, you know, we'll take a note of that. But then two years later, these Ukrainian activists who would later create Maidan Square and and ended up getting rid of Yanukovych, um, who fled the country um, right before Putin invaded uh, Crimea at the end of 2013. Uh, a few months prior to that, they got in touch with us through our chairman, Gary Kasparov, and together we 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 had a bitcoin fundraiser for them and and you know again the use case was really vivid in the case of wikileaks their bank accounts got shut down but they could accept bitcoin in the case of these ukrainian activists their bank accounts had been compromised so they could accept bitcoin so we were like hmm okay there's something here the next year people started donating to us in bitcoin in 2014 and it just kept like becoming like something that popped up um we decided to kind of institutionalize it in 20 in the spring of 2017 we started running workshops and and, and actually started doing some programming. And, um, you know, over time, it just became more clear that this would be a valuable tool for activists. In 2013, we institutionalized encryption uh, with regard to apps like Wicker or Signal, et cetera, uh, VPN training. We, we were trying to basically make sure that activists could preserve privacy on the internet with their communications. Um, so this kind of falls in line with that sort of, let's say, digital security training. Mm -hmm. uh, we want activists to be able to receive and send money um, in a secure way. We might call it financial security is what we might call it. Um, but but in other, you know, generally speaking, for us, it's like a administrative logistical tool. Uh, we want activists, if they need to be able to pay their colleagues and receive and send money and, and receive grants in a safe way that the government can't stop. Now, a lot of the activists, of course, are have an ideological appreciation for the separation of money and state. And, mm -hmm. you know, for them, it's more than just a tool. Uh, right. But but, you know, that's kind of our perspective. Now, we want to make it a stronger tool. So we've got, you know, we've, we do public education, we do trainings and workshops. And we also have like a development fund where we we support open source software that that helps make Bitcoin a better tool for activism. On top of the education, do you think that there are important technological innovations either for Bitcoin Core as a prot protocol or just like infrastructure built on top of Bitcoin that you think will help make it a lot more relevant and useful to for this kind of use case? Um, curious to know your thoughts about some of those challenges that um, are the most prevalent among um, activists and perhaps people mm -hmm. without the same kind of financial privilege that people in the West have to really accessing this technology and any changes that you think um, are being discussed right now in the Bitcoin community that you see as really um, full of potential um, for for the kind of use case that you guys are pushing um, behind Bitcoin when it comes to these kinds of conversations with with activists. Yeah, you know, Bitcoin is, is tricky. Um, you started to see activists use encryption like basically like uh, 30 years or something after it was like first sort of popularized. Like you, you had um, PGP launched in the early 90s, right? Uh, three decades later, you still didn't have a lot of human rights activists using PGP. It was really only until about 2018, 2019, 2020 that, that you really saw almost everybody using some sort of encrypted messaging. So Activists often aren't, when I say activists, I mean sort of global civil liberties groups, NGOs. They're, they're not necessarily the first groups to, to start using this tech. Um, uh, and that's what we see today. Like they're a small percentage, a tiny percentage in volume, but also just generally speaking, 
very few activists have started to use it yet. But it's growing every day. More and more do use it. And there's a lot of interest now from like larger institutions. Do you have some numbers behind that about like how many? Uh, how many what? Uh, in terms of usage, um, the, you said it was growing. Um, it's re still really small. Any any st statistics behind that? Sure. I'll give you uh, an example from what we've seen. In 2009, we estimated that maybe maybe 5% of the activists who attended our conference in Norway, the Oslo Freedom Forum, used some sort of encryption. But 10 years later, by 2019, it was 95%. So I, I, I think we're kind of in the earlier phase of that. My sense is that like maybe 10% of activists use, use Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Um, I think by the end of the decade, it'll be all of them, uh, mm -hmm. pretty much, you know, 90, 95%. So we're at the beginning of this. Um, as far as like what can be done to improve things, uh, that's what we do. I mean, it really, it comes down to education. Um, activists are more interested in Bitcoin than the average person because they, they immediately understand that the separation of money and state is interesting. Um, they, they have, they actually have like vivid, relevant issues with their bank accounts being frozen or whatever. So the idea that, that you could have a bank account that the government can't freeze or, or that you can use without attaching your ID to it is extremely, extremely interesting to them. But, you know, of course, like, usability, how do you do it? Where do I buy it? Like, there's just a lot of, of like advice, training, best practices. That's just like the bulk of the effort right now. Ahrefs is preparing a guide that will be free, that will come out uh, as a PDF next month, which will be for organ like activist organizations, as well as foundations that make grants. And it'll be like a guide to practically using Bitcoin in a safe and secure way. Like if you need to make a grant to somebody, let's say a Russian journalist that you're trying to support who now had to flee to Europe and doesn't have their bank account anymore. Like, you know, how best to do that with Bitcoin? Um, I, I think that there's, uh, you know, qu quite a bit to do on education. Also, the tools, though, that they can be better. You know, for the average Bitcoin user, privacy is just, you know, just to be realistic, is not, is not, an, is not a top three issue. Top three issues include liquidity. Um, they they include uh, custody. Uh, that they, they they include um, fees, speed, things like that. The average user of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, generally speaking, you know, for better or worse, and I guess it's for worse, just doesn't really care about privacy. And that that's even true to for for the most part for activists. Like when you talk about um, huh. activists in Belarus or Nigeria who've used Bitcoin, they're not they're not really that concerned about chain analysis. This is not like a thing that like dictators are really doing. Interesting. Um, this is a thing that Western governments are doing. Mm -hmm. So you have Western activists that are really concerned, rightly so, about chain analysis. And I'm with mm -hmm. them 100%. That's because their governments are using it. But like, <laughs> I mean, let's just put it this way. The, the Russian government um, is a pernicious attacker of, civil, of, of activist groups. The Navalny organization has used one address, one address for <laughs> since 2015. So 800 Bitcoin have been received onto this address. Single use, horrible for privacy. But guess what? Because <laughs> the key is not in Russia. It doesn't matter. Putin can't take it. Right. Um, you know, and he just hasn't devoted that many resources to like tracking where the funds go from there. So um, now if Russian users are using Binance, that's a different story. He He can then freeze them. But the point is that like, a lot of the like sort of technological concerns people have about Bitcoin privacy are just like not concerns in the in the real world. Like they're just they're not something that people encounter. It's just not something that's a problem, especially because a lot of them aren't attaching their ID to the Bitcoin in the first place. You know, so so it's a fascinating you know, I, I want to I, 
I mean, I want to make I want to make Bitcoin privacy much better for the average user. That's why I'm excited about Lightning. I think like Lightning yep. wallets are getting much more user friendly. Obviously, like two and a half years ago, you like basically couldn't use a mobile wallet on Lightning. Today, it's like super easy to use something like a Moon wallet or a Breeze wallet. It's just like a beautiful experience, um, and there's strong privacy there especially with send privacy. Like if you want to make a donation of a hundred bucks to some cause that accepts lightning, that's extremely good privacy for you as the, as the donor. So, and I think that you're going to get blinded paths this year in the next 12 months integrated across the lightning ecosystem, pretty much one way or another. So you're going to have really strong privacy there. So I think that the lightning wallets are going to become really useful for like smaller amounts that, that require really good privacy. That's going to be good. I'm, you know, really interested in Fetty. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, Lightning is is faster, cheaper, and and more private. I, I'm interested in this Fediment idea. Yeah. Uh, I I think that you're going to get a lot of activists interested in like creating coalitions where users can peg into a kind of like a community bank of sorts, and then you know, basically, you know that they would deposit their Bitcoin in via Lightning, and they and they would receive eCash, which would be like basically totally anonymous, essentially. Um, and then they could go spend that wherever for free instantly, et cetera. Um, so I, I think there's new tools and paradigms coming out that will, that will dramatically kind of like increase the, the, the ease of use and the practicality of using Bitcoin over like on-chain Bitcoin, which just has limitations. Yeah. Um, these are great points, so, by the way, you know, I, I want to dive into I, a couple I, of them if you have, a, if, if you're open yeah. to it. Um, yeah, hundred percent. But just to, just to wrap that part, like yeah. education and usability, our education and UX are the two biggest stumbling blocks by far, no question. And then, then you get down to like more fine grained things. Like then we can talk about privacy. Then we can talk about other stuff. But like, if you've got a human rights activist who doesn't use Bitcoin, you got to get, for, you got to get to a, before you can get to B, yeah. like you got to go from zero to one. So for a lot of them, it's going from zero to one. And I find it, you know, a little disconnected that a lot of the debates on like, let's say crypto Twitter or whatever are about these like hyper technological <laughs> facets of Bitcoin privacy or scaling, which just have just like no relevance to the end user at, at the moment. Um, just none whatsoever. Um, I, I would say, and we should definitely talk about, you know, obviously when I talked about privacy, not being a top three concern and other things being up there. I mean, volatility is a way bigger concern than privacy. So that's why you see stable coins so popular among activist groups too. So we can we can talk about that. Yeah, as well. um, we're definitely going to ask you about stable coins, but I just want to go back on a few. It, it's so fascinating. I think your point that on the ground, what they really need is secure, unstoppable, uh, you know, bank account in their pocket, uh, you know, with no digital ID. And there's a lot. I, I was looking through what you guys have recently funded. And, and to your point, right, HRF funds development efforts um, in Bitcoin, but also, as you pointed out, a lot of a lot of educational efforts. Um, some research efforts I saw in your most recent grants. Um, but one thing you've talked a lot about um, also is is Starks, right? Like um, zero knowledge technology on Bitcoin as a privacy thing. Mm -hmm. It seems like to your point, this is sort of further out. It's not the primary focus of getting, you know, P Bitcoin in people's hands, yes. training them on custody and, um, and on UX. But um, you think long-term that's a huge thing that we need in Bitcoin just broadly? It obviously would help your activists, yeah. um, if, if they had it and they, and it was easy for them to use, but what's your view on that part too? Cause I think you, you've also done stuff with, with coin swap, right? Um, was that Christian Decker that you funded in the past as well? 
uh belcher chris belcher oh, belcher um, excuse me yep but no it's okay but uh, yeah and at this point the the bitcoin development fund hrefs.org slash dev fund i mean we've done almost 40 gifts in different sizes to different projects around the world and yeah a lot of them have related directly to privacy um and obviously it's it's very relevant to our mission very important right um but it's a little bit of a like a lot of the things we're funding that that could help with privacy are, are a little experimental like you know coin swaps space chains fediments like a lot of these things either only exist in an alpha or don't even exist yet um we'd like right. to see them happen we're, we're currently doing a research paper uh that we worked with the starkware team on that we hired John Light um, to do, where he's looking at, at ZK rollups and whether or not they make sense for Bitcoin. So I, I, I think you kind of have four paradigms, right? Um, you, you, you kind of have uh, you have on-chain privacy, which which we want to help. I mean, we want to support things like uh, join you know join market is something that Chris Belcher worked on quite a bit. Um, we 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 are definitely in support of coin joins. Um, I just appeared on like a reason video where we were talking about coin joins i think that like this so we supported the sparrow wallet was which that a is new video because you did a great one with them already maybe a two months ago i can't remember yeah they've been great there's three actually so They're sick these are really a year good. and we'll, a half we'll about these in the show notes by the way yeah there's there's one a year and a half ago which which i scripted it's about generally why human rights and freedom relate to bitcoin there's one they did about the environment that i did with nick carter maybe a year about 10 months ago. And then there's one that came out a few weeks last week about coin joints that I was I appeared on with the developer behind Samurai Wallet and Craig Raw, who, who developed Sam, Sparrow Wallet. Now, Sparrow Wallet is a project we've supported. It's a fantastic uh, desktop, open source, non-KYC Bitcoin wallet that that makes it really easy to do things like coin control. I mean, it's obviously for power users, but like it's, it's a fantastic privacy tool for people who are, you know, activist minded, I, I would say. Um, and, and that's one area there's the kind of, again, these four areas of privacy that we want to support. One is sort of just like on-chain privacy that also extends to Bitcoin core. We've also supported like Gloria Zhao is working on basically, um, how to make it so that full nodes are less susceptible to like doxing attacks, like how to make kind of Bitcoin use at the core more private. So yep. that's one bucket. Another bucket is lightning. We're big believers in lightning. I mean, it works right now really well for smaller payments. Uh, it's so great to see exchanges from Kraken to Bitnob in Nigeria to um, Cash App all enabling Lightning deposits and withdrawals. That's really, really important. Uh, again, Lightning privacy being really strong right now on on, on the send side and, and hopefully improving on the receive side soon. Um, there's a lot of people working on that stuff. There's some cool things happening right now with like dual funded channels and this project called Vortex, which which uh, basically kind of tries to marry coin joins and Lightning. Uh, th there's a lot we can do nice. to achieve more privacy in, in Lightning. Yep. So we've we've supported a lot of Lightning projects. Number three would be other kinds of layer two ideas. So that would be like space chains. That would be like, um, for example, uh, zk rollups. I mean, I think rollups are generally speaking, obviously more of a scaling thing. Um, but the cool part is they can also be very, very strong privacy improvements, um, or at least they, they've shown this for other chains. I, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know what the future is there for Bitcoin. I, I, I do find it intriguing, and we, we want what we're going to do is release an industry paper that basically says, you know, whether or not rollups make sense, zk rollups make sense for for Bitcoin, and and if so, how, what would need to happen? And 
you know, you're probably looking at, you know, a pretty major soft fork. So I don't, I just don't know if that's going to happen in the near future, but we'll see. Totally. Um, you know, you also, you also think about potential soft forks like, uh, that, that could happen with sign cross input signature aggregation. And th there's some interesting things down the road that could really improve Bitcoin, but those are all experimental. The last bucket would be kind of fediments, which would be this area of like making a trade-off on custody where you have instead of first party custody, which is like me having a hardware wallet and having the seed phrase or third party custody, which is me storing my Bitcoin with strangers on an exchange that's regulated. Uh, there's this idea of second party custody, which is storing your Bitcoin with, with friends, family, community, kind of the uncle Jim model. Right. Um, <laughs> so Fediman is the idea of taking uncle Jim and scaling it to the world. So we find it very interesting because it has, it has a lot of upsides and, you know, honestly, in a lot of authoritarian government uh, regimes and emerging market countries, there already is a, a huge amount of kind of like these parallel trusted financial systems that, that could be upgraded and improved upon with, with fediments, essentially. The, we're, I'm talking about Hawala, which does like $250 billion a year, uh, totally parallel to the regulated financial system all over the world. And I'm also, which is, you know, thousands of years old. And I'm also talking about SUSUs, which are like, uh, like these like community banks that are popular all across Africa and the Caribbean, um, where you, and they're mainly among women actually. And, and people basically entrepreneurs, street vendors, stuff like that, they, they'll peg their savings into the SUSU. And then they get like, basically, you know, they get benefits that are more than just what they could achieve on their own because they pool their capital. So you get some really interesting ideas off fediments. So we're trying to support privacy in, in all four areas. That's great. Um, uh, uncle, for the audience here, Uncle Jim is uh, a reference. It's that's that's you know your your crazy uncle that knows all about Bitcoin and runs Bitcoin Node, and, right. and, and the concept is like maybe yeah. like maybe you just like give him a hundred bucks in cash, and, and he, he gives like, you some Bitcoin. He does he the custody for it. He runs the node. He does the stuff, and you want to scale yeah. that and make it more collaborative. With Fediments. Exactly. Fediments, Fediments is basically like, uh, you could imagine, um, let's say, a human rights group in Nigeria is running a Fediment, and there's like five or six people that are the, what are the, what are called the guardians. They run the server. Um, and they might, they don't even have to be in Nigeria. They could be elsewhere. Right. Um, they could be pseudonymous. They could be in different countries. But they basically run the server. They keep good uptime. Um, and then users are trusting them. Um, so there's, you know, that trade-off, but it's not a regulated exchange and, and it yep. gives you full privacy and it gives you essentially, you know, cheap, extremely cheap, spendable e-cash. So it's, it's a vision that has roots in, you know, the early nineties with this project yep. called DigiCash. I, I wrote a piece on this that you can link to in the notes, um, that yep. came out a couple weeks ago. So, yeah, I saw your Fettyman's piece. We'll definitely, we'll definitely link to that, right? This is sort of based on David Chalm's DigiCash, um, uh, yeah. concept. From yeah, no. And look, I mean, in the, the, the dream is for, for all activists to be first class, you know, self custody Bitcoin users. Um, I just don't know if we can get there. We know we can't get the whole world there. Um, there's right. not enough, there won't be enough UTXOs for everybody. Today, we live in a world where most Bitcoin users have several UTXOs. In 20, 30 years, it'll be a world where, uh, most people don't have a UX UTXO. They're sharing it some way. Yep. So that's just a reality. There's also the math with lightning doesn't work. Like there's just no real way that you could get 7 billion people on lightning, um, all self custodied. So, you know, I, I think that we need to accept that there's compromises and, you know, we need to think more broadly here. And, um, 
Yep. Yeah, we're trying to do that as well. But at the end of the day, uh, I guess what I want to say is there's a lot of challenges out there and we're trying to invest in areas that will help Bitcoin become a better tool for activism. First and foremost, that's education and going from zero to one, understanding it, learning best practices. That could be done through educational materials, translations, conferences. We're supporting the Africa Bitcoin Conference in Ghana in de this December, which I'm really excited about. Um, that's also to be done through just hands-on trainings and workshops. And, and then, yeah, finally, it's like improving the tools, which mm -hmm. primarily is going to be around UX and, and just better access and liquidity and ease of use. And then in a secondary nature, um, things like privacy. Yeah. So I think you get the whole spectrum. That's great. I think a lot of these these interesting tools that you were talking about, Alex, are very focused on like the activist level. I'm curious to get your take on how you view the way states and governments are looking at using cryptocurrencies. Um, you've written before extensively about the CFA Frank and how France maintains this like monetary colonialism, colonialism over huge areas of Africa. And I wonder your view on, on the role that Bitcoin could play in this dynamic and your view on the way El Salvador has started to use Bitcoin um, and how that has garnered so much support from members of the Bitcoin community. We also talked a uh -huh. little bit on this podcast last week about the Central African Republic launching its own cryptocurrency, Sango coin, to kind of raise money. Um, so uh, definitely, like, I think there's there's education that is being done for, for activists on more like a grassroots level. But there also seems to be like strategies that governments are taking who have traditionally been... Um, repressed by like the global financial order, um, looking and turning to crypto for different reasons, for different solutions. Um, what's your take on that kind of activity um, that's happening more on the state side? Do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing? Is it um, mostly like all more corrupt, like governments, like corrupt actions? Or is it something that you think, um, you know, has, has the potential for, uh, you know, really genuinely like progressing the, the vision of, of Bitcoin, um, helping, you know, relieve a lot of these, these uh, legacy financial systems. Well, it's nuanced. I mean, I think that over the coming decade, more and more developing countries or kind of periphery countries are going to adopt Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in different ways. Um, I just think that's inevitable. Um, I think that the current financial system doesn't serve them or they're being directly repressed, you know, in the case of the, the colonial Frank system where, mm -hmm. you know, 180 million Africans are living under essentially an exploitative model. Can, um, you, can you just for the listeners give a quick summary of the CFA Frank system? Because it's pretty outrageous. Alex also has an excellent article about this and it's also in his book, but. Yeah. Um, after World War II, the uh, French colonial, you know, had a colonial dominance over quite a bit of Africa, uh, as well as Asia, the Middle East. They started decolonizing uh, in the 50s, uh, and they they kept, um, they, they got, they were forced out of, <laughs> to put it lightly, uh, a lot of their possessions in, let's say, Vietnam or uh, or mm -hmm. Algeria, uh, many other places. But they, 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 they wanted to keep control over all these like resource rich um, parts of Africa in West and Central Africa. Uh, but they didn't, but they, they kind of were pressured to give up political control. 
So they basically decided to keep financial control and cede political control to dictators who would like basically do what they say. So you have these 15 nations in Africa that are part of the system. They originally, all of the financial matters were handled by Paris. Like basically whenever these countries would earn uh, income from exporting goods or services, the, that would all go through Paris. Like 100% of the reserves would be stored there. The French would be able to leverage that um, and loan that out uh, mm -hmm. at, at high rates, or they'd have access to cheap capital. The locals would have nothing, no control over anything. Um, the, the, these countries would have to like sell their exports first to Paris at a lower the market price. And then uh, only if they got uh, refused by Paris, they could sell elsewhere. <laughs> they also, when they needed like infrastructure built, they had to hire a French company at a lower than market price or rather at a higher than market price. And then only if that didn't work, could they go shop elsewhere? So it's basically like French used all these countries as like a, like a plantation, essentially. Uh, they harvested, you know, free or, you know, stolen or, or extremely cheap things like uranium to power their nuclear state from, from Niger. They harvested timber and bauxite and tin, all this stuff. And then they would also oil. And then they would also, uh, sell back all the manufactured goods, whether it be cars or whatever to, to these countries, Senegal, Mali, um, Togo, Benin, etc. Um, and over time there were like some cosmetic changes. Like now, like there's a central bank in, in Cameroon and in, in, in Senegal, like the, 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 the currency doesn't have French stuff on it anymore on the paper. It has African imagery and animals like that, but it's all sort of, sort of a superficial changes. Like at the end of the day, the French still colonially control this currency. So there's a movement of activists interested in, in, using Bitcoin as like an escape. So some of them are convening a conference that I mentioned earlier in Ghana later this year. Um, but generally speaking, most developing countries are trapped in kind of a similar dynamic um, where you have this core periphery thing. Um, I, 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 that being said, I think we need to be careful about, you know, any state when it comes out, says it wants to use Bitcoin. We should be, we should be careful. I mean, I, looking at the two, the two nations that have sort of adopted Bitcoin, um, I think there's positives and negatives. I mean, I, and I think it's positive, obviously, that nations want to give whether or not we care or agree with their long-term vision. Um, it's good that they're giving their citizens like, you know, easy, easy access and legal, you know, legal confidence in using Bitcoin. That's good. Um, I think that uh, it's a good, it's, it's, it's a good momentum, but like, you know, in El Salvador, like the government is pushing this, Chivo app, which is like a surveillance mechanism, which basically is, you know, geared towards the government holding the Bitcoin instead of the citizens. There's just a lot of questions there. Um, and in the C in the CAR, I mean, in the Central African Republic, like, I mean, they moved pretty fast from like having this Bitcoin law to like launching like their own coin, <laughs> which, you know, is not that helpful. And from what I could tell, looking carefully at the quote unquote Genesis paper of the Sango coin, right? And it we looks like, it looks too. like a 2017. I, it looks like a 2017. Yeah. ICO paper. I don't think it's, it's, it's not the same goal as, um, you know, integrating or adopting no. Bitcoin. It's literally, <laughs> they just want to raise money. I think they see no, the web three bros too... out here raising like hundreds of millions of dollars and they need money. So they're like, maybe we can do yeah, that. Yeah. It's so funny. They're like, they've got like lockups and all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 it's like the token economics part of the paper. It's, yeah. It's disappointing. I mean, you know, you know where this is going to go. It's going to go the way of Miami coin. Miami 
I believe, has a larger economy than the CAR. They tried to do this and they failed. So, I mean, just look at the price of Miami coin. I mean, it's a disaster. So <laughs> I, I'm not that enthusiastic about this. I mean, I, I think it was the wrong move. And it's to enrich a small group of people who, who obviously yeah. created Sango coin. They, you know, if they, care, if, they, if they cared about the country and they, they, they would just focus on building a Bitcoin infrastructure and just right. building out Bitcoin. Right. Like, so I, I don't know. Again, there's positives and negatives in both. Um, but it is true that, you know, there is this idea of like moving beyond the colonial franc. There is this idea in El Salvador of, of moving beyond American control. And th those are genuine um, desires. It's just that we need to be a little careful and well, skeptical and what, here. One of my complaints about El Salvador, aside from the fact, uh, to go back to El Salvador, aside from the fact, um, which is a fact that Bukele um, isn't, the most, uh, the biggest lover of democratic reforms, right? I mean, the big criticisms have been that he he fired a significant portion of the Supreme Court that opposed him. They passed a an important law on you know uh, increasing government power with the military police, like inside the the chamber. Um, he's done a lot of extrajudicial things. N none of that's good, right? But aside from that, also just simply mandating Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, really mandating anything, right? It's it's antithetical, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's a little overblown. I don't think anyone's being forced to use Bitcoin. In well, they El aren't Salvador. on the ground. I we know, that... in fact, many aren't even using it, but, right? Well, uh, most aren't point. using it. Right. A, a decent amount are using it. There are There is independent right. data out there. It's like right. double-digit percentage of people have been using it. It's pretty okay. good. That's not, that's not nothing. Um, now they're using Chivo, and we can debate that. Um, right. But the point is that, like, there's no there's no case of someone being arrested or for not, not accepting for not using it. Bitcoin. Okay. Right. So that's, that's, I think a red herring. I think the, the, the main issue is that Bukele uses Bitcoin as a distraction from dismantling democracy in El Salvador, which I've been very outspoken about. And right. you can see every time he like has a Bitcoin announcement, it's timed when something like grievous, you know, something serious happens on the, you know, dismantling checks on his power. Like literally, if you look at when they announced the initial vision, it was like, you know, a couple of weeks after they fired, they sacked the attorney general and stacked the Supreme Court. Okay, September 7, 2021, the Bitcoin law takes effect. Okay, I was down there. I saw I saw that stuff. But at the same time, he like, in a crazy move, like got the new Supreme Court, which he had just stacked to basically overrule the Constitution to allow him to have another term. Um, later in the year, they announced this Bitcoin city thing. And mm -hmm. it was at the same time that they announced all these restrictions on foreign NGOs and journalists. So I don't know. Like, I, it's like every time I think he's just using it to distract um, from uh, from his his consolidation of power. Um, Interesting. I still think it was good. To, it was good. It was good to adopt Bitcoin. It'll be good for the country long term. I don't think there's any question there. Uh, they'll go down in history. That's a visionary thing to do. But I mean, unfortunately, he's. He's no George Washington here, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, you Far know. He's it. he's ruining his le his legacy by, you know. And I, it's sad to see Bitcoiners like supporting him. I mean, I think you can you can support Bitcoin and Bitcoin's adoption without supporting Bukele. Like this is very obvious and easy to yep. do for me. And people just want to like stand him, um, and that's unfortunate because he's everything that Bitcoin uh, is supposed to, you know, not be, which is, you know state control of the money and all that stuff. So I want to go back to one thing that I think was quite important that you, you said earlier in this podcast. And you said one of the important qualities about 
crypto for activists is not necessarily privacy, but it is things like liquidity, volatility, um, the ease of which you can, you know, move it around and, and depend on its value being stable. It sounds to me like one of the most, uh, the asset that actually performs and fulfills those qualities better than Bitcoin are stable coins. And stable coins, building stable coins on Bitcoin is quite difficult. It's like a lot easier on other more general purpose. hundred percent. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to know your take, Alex, about the use of stable coins by activists. And um, we know that, you know, there is no other blockchain that is as decentralized as Bitcoin. And a lot of the most popular stable coins are centralized stable coins. So there is, you know, a, a you know, tether trade-offs, uh, trade-offs yeah. with censorship. So what is what are your thoughts about the, the future of stable coins and the use of stable coins by activists? And is it today actually way larger um, among activists than Bitcoin is? Like is stable coins already like really the, the crypto of choice um, more so than Bitcoin? Well, I think Bitcoin is still more popular among activists who, again, represent a small group. I, I think there's a lot of interest in USDC and Tether among activists, journalists and activists have requested to be paid out in stable coins. Um, mm-hmm. We at HRF now, uh, when we give out a grant, we offer Bitcoin, Tether or dollars. So people oh, can tether. choose. Um, yeah. Uh, te- well, Tether's just mo- most dominant in the emerging markets. And author- like, it like is. I understand they, that they like USDC and stuff, right? I mean, it's actually like, yeah, like a- USDC might be like flipping Tether, like, globally but like that's not the case in lebanon or in any of the countries that we're looking at like like usdc's volume and dominance relates almost entirely from what we can tell to like large financial firms and yep. trading and stuff like like when it comes to like people exchanging cash for small amounts of stable coins it's usually not usdc it's it's usually tether um so tether is like this important tool that took me a long time to realize like i thought the stable coins were stupid for a long time um <laughs> And uh, I just had to change my mind once I saw people using them like en masse, like in Turkey and Argentina and all these places. Now, I mean, I think that's a nuanced conversation. I think that like, I think it's a temporary tool that people need now because A, they just like, I think it's just morally speaking, if we're going to still live under the fiat standard, like we sh- everybody in the world should have access to the best fiat. Like that seems obvious to me. And they don't. Most people live under a horrible system. In fact, more than two, I just ran the numbers recently, more than 2 billion people live under double digit inflation right now. And I wouldn't be shocked to see that number go to three or 4 billion later this year if, if for whatever reason we see the EU or the United States uh, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or India, India um, any, some of these countries moving in that direction, which is entirely possible. So um, you're looking at a situation where people want dollars. And uh, I think that right now, like, you know, stable coins play a really, really key role. And also just Bitcoin being too volatile. Hopefully long term, we won't need them. But um, but they do play a key role right now. And and you see, I mean, look, the permissionless, you don't need ID to use them. Um, again, like, it's not like this underlines why privacy is like, is is more of a like, let's say secondary or like a future thinking concern. Like people are just using Tether and, and USDC and they don't. I mean, they don't really care about the fact that it, it's it's not very private or that it's completely freezable. You know, that's these are just not even issues for them, right? So, I don't know. It's a little strange, but the fact is, stablecoins are are here to stay for now. Um, yep. In this in this conversation, they're very important for people around the world who don't have access to the dollar. Um, you know, currently, 
and it's dangerous because you have stuff like Terra happen. Like a ton of people in Argentina and Nigeria were in, were involved in were totally like retail people, some activists, you know, they were they were told that Tether was too sketchy and they thought that Terra was like a more decentralized option. This is like actually something that happened. So I don't know, it's tragic and um it's unfortunate and you know, I guess Dai has been relatively stable through it all, but like generally right. speaking the algor- algorithmic coins have been you know, are, are, are dangerous. And, um, I think you're seeing these centralized stable coins provide a lot of value for people. As long as they don't have to do KYC, um, it helps people. Um, we'll see point. where that goes. I mean, just, j- just today, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about like, um, basically like some of these coins going on to lightning wallets, like yes. through whether it be Taro, Taro, um, or there's synonym, an, right? there's uh, a, John Carvalho and Tether are working on something on this as well. Yep, Tether's got something. I think Blockstream is in, is potentially involved in that. And then you've got um, this thing that came out today that Galoi launched, uh, which is like uh, sta- stable Sats or s- something like that. Um, but that's that's the other model. Like I, you you can definitely like do tokens on Lightning. Okay, I mean we'll see. I mean I think that would be helpful if you could have a lightning wallet that could, that could trade tether. I mean, that would obviously be very helpful for a lot of folks in this, in this area. Um, that'd be cool. Um, however, you can also do contracts, right? You can do smart contracts. So, um, this new project from Galois is, is basically based on, uh, perpetual swaps. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, kind of like BitMEX used to do, right. Yep. Or whatever was based yep. on. So, you know, you don't have to have like an underlying deposit. You can have a contract. So, yep. Um, I think both models are interesting and we're, we're monitoring both. And I mean, the dream is to have a, a self-sovereign Bitcoin user who has a non-KYC open source wallet, let's say in Havana, Cuba. And the dream is that they can peg some amount of their Bitcoin to dollar exposure without needing a bank account or a passport. So, you know, that's the dream. And like, we're just going to kind of see where, how close we can get. I love it. Um, just, you mentioned people wanted dollars too, and you tell a great story in your book. Um, check your financial privilege, an excellent book, by the way. Um, which I really enjoyed. You tell a story about a, a, a doctor working abroad, um, who's Sudanese and his family is in Sudan. And, um, Omar al-Bashir was the dictator there for 30 years or something. And, um, it was actually illegal, straight up illegal. You could be arrested and sent to jail for having dollars in your pocket. Um, that clearly isn't long-term viable if you're trying to save dollars, um, and many people are. So I totally get how you know the the digital mobile phone access to dollars in a permissionless way is valuable. It's a great story um, and a terrifying existence, by the way, that that many people live under. It kind of sounds, though, Alex, that you're say, talking about um, stable coins as kind of like a, a a temporary stepping stone in this like end game where Bitcoin ends up as like the one currency to kind of rule them all. Um, do you see a place for like decentralized stable coins or other, you know, cryptocurrencies um, playing a role, even CBDCs, I guess, playing a role, or do you kind of see like the the do you uh, can can um do you subscribe to the view of like hyper bitcoinization is another way to put it for the end game of bitcoin like stable coins yeah. all these other alternative cryptocurrencies being a stepping stone to you know what will ultimately just be bitcoin in the end yeah well in my book uh the book kind of is, is check your financial privilege has two parts one one part is the rise of bitcoin adoption as told through the eyes of 
individuals around the world who are using it in surprising ways and surprising places and who are using it to escape financial oppression, um, whether it be in Palestine or Cuba or Togo, et cetera. Um, the other part of the book is a sort of a his monetary history and is looking at how did the dollar hegemony come to be? Like why did the gold standard end? Um, and it kind of looked at that transition and it's looking kind of more forward here um, as, as we peer into the future. And yeah, I, I basically think that you have this like hierarchy of money that used to be gold at the top um, and then central bank reserves and then bank deposits and then credit and then derivatives. You know, it's like a, a, a what's called the hierarchy of money. And today gold's no longer at the top. The U.S. dollar is or basically treasuries. We live under like the treasury bill standard or the dollar standard. Right. Um, I think we're going to go into the Bitcoin standard. So I basically think that in the 20, 30 years from now, Bitcoin will be the ultimate monetary good of the world. Um, and then there's going to be all kinds of like stuff underneath Bitcoin on the hierarchy. So there's going to be big paper Bitcoin. There's going to be Bitcoin credits. There's going to be Bitcoin derivatives. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of stuff that make up the bulk of how people interact with with Bitcoin, just 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 as today, uh, even though like native Fed dollars or treasuries are the ultimate good, most people around the world use other stuff. And just as before then, in the gold standard, most people didn't actually use gold for day to day commerce. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's going to be room for all kinds of monetary experimentation in the future. The difference is and what's exciting and what makes it completely impossible to predict how it will look is that the end user can hold that same asset that governments are holding and that nobody can issue it, right? Like nobody can just issue Bitcoin. You have to like put in the proof of work and mine it and and kind of puts everyone on the same playing field. And the cool part is that like individuals and activists or whatever can self, can be a self-sovereign and have a piece of this thing, which is very different from before. Um, and that makes it like exciting, but also like impossible to predict. But yeah, I do think there's going to be you know, I think even just the idea of fediments is this idea of like you pegging your Bitcoin into a system for different kinds of upsides. Um, fediments could can be seen as analogous to other layer one blockchains, basically. Like, like mm -hmm. you know, you you peg you peg your Bitcoin into a fediment and get a token of some kind, and it does different things. Um, I think they're pretty similar in a lot of ways. Um, it, it's it's um, it's an interesting future. I I I continue to think that they're going to be all kinds of kind of Bitcoin credits and paper Bitcoin. And that's kind of Hal Finney's vision, right? I was about to say, this sounds like Bitcoin banks from Hal Finney, uh, his like 2010 yeah, post. Like, I mean, we'll see. I mean, ideally we get as close as possible to everybody being self-sovereign, but right. that's just a very utopian vision. I mean, we should be realistic. Um, we'll see. I mean, we, it'd be great if as many people as possible could be using like real Bitcoin and Lightning, but uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. So, um, well, you're doing a lot of work to help make that possible, um, which I yeah, really we, respect. we get as close as we can. But also, I want to like look at what's happening in the broader industry and see what might work for Bitcoin. Um, so we'll see how this research paper comes out on on zk rollups. I think that's intriguing. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, it's really about about Bitcoin. I mean, it's it's about this one open currency for everybody that doesn't have any special privileges or pre-mines or whatever. It's the same for everybody, no matter where you are in the world. And you don't need a particular like a credential to access it. And that it has like basically monetary equality of opportunity. Um, I think that's kind of the vision and dream that I, that I subscribe to. 
And um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, as you say, the, the coin to rule them all in that, in that, uh, in that, in that paradigm, in that, Love in that, that. framework. Was that shade towards Ethereum at the end with the pre-mine? <laughs> sure. Yeah. All, all the, all the other, I mean, all these other coins are, uh, are ultimately liabilities of somebody. I mean, I don't know whether they're securities or not. That's for a different podcast, but they're, they're definitely not assets. They're definitely, they're definitely not outside money. They're, they're, there's somebody's they're inside money. There's somebody's liability. Somebody else can change them. Somebody else can change the rules. Uh, obviously, you've seen other cryptocurrencies create useful tools for now that that we've talked about here. Um, and maybe Fediments create new tokens that are useful for people too. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think it's fascinating and, and exciting that like individuals can access the world's top ultimate monetary good and uh, outside money that's that's nobody's liability that that can't be changed. I mean, in any other crypto network, like the fundamental token can be changed and will be changed. And, you know, that's something that you get to escape with Bitcoin, which is just a massive, massive difference maker, I think, in the coming decades. So um, very powerful. You know, again, we work on it for all the reasons that let's say someone like Jack Dorsey explains why he works on it. Um, just everything about it, the, the creation of it, the open nature of it, um, the fact that nobody controls it. Um, I think there's a lot that can be done to improve Bitcoin by, by learning from both the traditional financial system, as well as some of these other crypto experiments. So we'll be, we'll be following along. Awesome. This is a phenomenal conversation, Alex. Really appreciate it. Congrats on 15 years at the Human Rights Foundation. Um, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap that you're working on? You're, you're doing a bunch of travel, uh, in the next six months, uh, going out mm -hmm. to a lot of places. Um, anything you'd like to tell our listeners before we wrap? Sure. Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Gladstein. You can follow the human rights foundation at hrf.org. We have an event in New York city on October 3rd called the Oslo freedom forum in New York. Um, would definitely recommend you come, uh, come to the theater program, get a table at the dinner. It'll be really fun. Uh, you can check that out at oslofreedomforum.com. I'm going to be speaking at the Nashville Bitcoin meetup in September 15, 16. That'll be fun. I'll be at Bitcoin Amsterdam in, in I think, 13, 14 of October. I'll be at the Pacific Bitcoin Conference November, I think, 11, 12. And I'll be at the Africa Bitcoin Conference, uh, which I believe is actually going to be December 5 to 7. So I'll be around. I hope to see some of you out there. And uh, yeah, thanks again for having me on. Alex, thanks for coming. Uh, really appreciate it. We'll wrap now. Uh, Bitcoin block height 747,837. That is the current time. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome conversation again on Galaxy Brains this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Christine from Galaxy Digital Research and Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. Um, as always, check us out, galaxy.com slash research, um, GLXY research uh, on Twitter. Um, and and uh, everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXYResearch and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.